But I want you to open your Bible this morning to the book of Matthew, chapter 18. Matthew 18. And while you're there, I'm going to read from another book, Mark. But you can stay in Matthew 18 because it's referring to the same event. My title this morning is, Who Will Be the Greatest? Now, we know it's going to be me, but other than the the rest of you. (laughs) Now, that's the question. Who will be the greatest? Is it possible that on the other side, some of us will be greater than others? Will be more admired and, wow, wish I was where, will we have any of that? Well, apparently the... Apostles, the followers of Jesus, thought so. For example, here in Mark chapter 9 and verse 34, it says, But they held their peace, for by the way, they had disputed amongst themselves who should be the greatest. Now, they didn't talk about it around Jesus. But when they were among themselves, they discussed the matter of who would be the greatest whether the greatest now in ministry who will have the most powerful looked up to ministry of note, who will have the most praise and attention, the most invitations, make the most money, who will be the greatest? Or maybe on the other side, when we get to heaven, you know, they did argue, they asked one time, can I sit on your right hand? Can I sit on your left hand? always wanting to be where the action is. I want people to notice that I am there with it. I'm part of that. I am one of them. So they probably thought about this a lot. Maybe they thought there was a possibility that one of them could be greater than the other ones. Perhaps so. You know, Peter had the keys of the kingdom, but he didn't do well at first. Maybe he thought he wasn't a part of what's going to be great. But there were some who were discussing amongst themselves, who will be the greatest? And Matthew chapter 18, verses 1 through 6 is our story. And it says, at the same time, the disciples came unto Jesus saying, who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? Because he knew they'd been talking about it. So he asked them the question, who is the greatest in the kingdom? And Jesus called the little child unto him. And set him in the midst of them, and he said, Verily I say unto you, except you be converted and become as little children, you shall not enter into the kingdom of heaven. Whosoever therefore shall humble himself as this little child, the same is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. And whoso shall receive one such little child in my name receives me. But whoso shall offend one of these little ones which believe in me, It would be better for him if a millstone were hanged about his neck and he was thrown in the middle of the sea. So Jesus makes quite a bit out of it. Lord, who'll be the greatest? Who's the greatest in the kingdom? There's probably a crowd of people around. I can only imagine you weren't there and I wasn't there, but there must have been people around. There was a child there. Wasn't an infant. Somebody didn't pass the baby up. It was a lad, maybe 12 years old. He said, come here. And the child said, no, I ain't ain't ready for all this. The child didn't say that. Child had no agenda of resistance. Had no reason to not cooperate yet. He hadn't gotten old enough to 
listen to all the noise in this world to know that he can make excuses and avoid Christianity or avoid all of this. But this child just kind of came forward in front of all these people, maybe a little bit shy, I don't know. But the point of it is, hey, there was no resistance. He came and he stood there. And Jesus said, except you be converted and become like this. Now, he's not talking about all the things that aggravate parents and children. He wasn't saying that it's okay to be a child all your life because we, if you never grew up, you'd say a child. And we know that God put in the church evangelists, pastors, and teachers, and so forth, ministry gifts for the equipping of the saints that we no longer be like children, tossed to and fro, unstable. He's not talking about that aspect of this child. But get this picture. I think this is important. Come here. Child probably knew who he was. Probably heard him before, seen him before, heard people talk about him. Probably was a child who took note that who this was that called him, had great deep respect for him, and knew it was only right to respond to him. And he did. And he came there. Jesus didn't ask him to do anything. He just said, come here. And as he stood there and people looked at this child, trying, probably trying to measure what's about him, he said, except you be converted and become like this child, you shall not enter into the kingdom. Now, I think it's interesting in the scriptures that there are three times in the New Testament from the lips of Jesus that he said things like this. Notice, for example, except you become, does it say that? The word except means unless. There's no alternative, in other words. This is a necessary need. And except you become, which is a process of change, isn't it? It doesn't necessarily happen overnight. I'm not talking about the new birth, I don't think. But he said, except you become like this child. This is what I'm talking about, he said. Except you're converted and become like this child, you won't enter the kingdom. Does that mean that if there's not that kind of a change, whatever it is he's talking about, that we won't make it? Well, let's see. Let's try another word, except. If you put your finger there, we're going to come right back to it. And look in John's gospel. John chapter 3, verse 3. Jesus said, except you be born again, you shall not what? Enter the kingdom. Now, which one of those is more meaningful than the other one? Because we know this. We say this. We receive this. Except I'm born again, I can't go to heaven. You'd agree that. Because the Bible says that. No ifs, ands, or buts about it. It says except unless you are born again, born from above, an act of God, all of that. Unless you are born again, you will not enter the kingdom. So with passion, purpose, we preach the new birth, the essentialness of the new birth. There's no life of an abiding Christ within you unless there is first a new birth. That's one of the supreme important messages of the Bible. We make it important because Jesus did. He said, except this happens to you, you will make it into the kingdom. Another place in the Sermon on the Mount, 
Matthew chapter 5, 20, Jesus said, except your righteousness exceed the righteousness of the Pharisees and Sadducees, you cannot enter the kingdom. Is it that serious? I'm asking you folks. I'm not trying to make this hard. I'm not trying to overdo it. I certainly don't want to water it down. I just want us to see what Jesus said, that there are details in what he said that are so essential that we cannot let these things slip. He said, except your right ways exceed these Pharisees' right ways, you won't make it. And the Pharisees were the most outgoing displaying of religion of all people. I mean, they had the garb on, they wore the garb, they prayed loudly in the streets and they were always reading and discussing the scrolls and deep in their understanding, they thought. And they were glad about that. One day, one prays into the temple and says, I thank thee, God, I'm not like Hamilton. I fast twice a week, I give tithes and I blah, 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 blah. Now, the other man in that story could not so much as lift up his eyes to heaven. He was so ashamed of himself, so ashamed of his sins and his sinful life and the weakness of his life in doing what's right. He couldn't, didn't want to, enjoyed his sins. Once he recognized that and once he realized the shamefulness of his sinful life, once that happened... He was at the greatest crossroads of his life he would ever be. He could either make it right now or he could get over it and never be bothered by it again. His conviction would go away. But he stood there and he said, God have mercy on me, a sinner. He could boast of nothing. There was nothing he had ever done with his life that he was proud of, wanted everybody else to know what he did. Look what I've done, folks. Look where all I've been. Look at how many countries I've been to. Look at how many people I've preached to. Look how long I've pastored. Look how many sermons I've had. Look how many books I've read. Blah, 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 blah. Aren't I great? Admire me. Notice me. Talk about me. Long to be like me. Want to hang around me. I am so wonderful. Jesus said, if you're anything at all like that, you won't make it because that's not what heaven is about. Heaven is not about people who are going to command that I want that place over there. I don't like this one. Heaven is not about a bunch of people going there to reorganize it or to redo it or to discuss differences between each. None of that. If you can't get it right here, what makes us think we'll get it right there? Our rightness before God, our right standing before God is not something we boast of. We don't even have a right to it. It is God who counts us to be righteous because of our faith. And the faith we have is a gift from God. And yet, we like to boast. Boasting is one of man's great weaknesses. Man likes recognition and praise. He likes to see his picture in his pamphlets and his writings. He likes to hear his name when it's mentioned. He likes to be introduced. 
and hear all the great things said about his introduction. Sometimes we overdo that. Now, I don't do that with Brother Atlanta, but we sometimes overdo that. We make each other out to be more than we actually are. You know that, don't you? If I was known to everybody the way my wife knows me, I wouldn't even be introduced. <laughs> I would probably just say, Tom, come up here. That's it. Because Jesus said, in reality, all of us, whoever any of us think we are that have gone so far and done so much and we're so important, Jesus said, we're still unprofitable servants. We have only done what was given us to do if we did something. Look where I went. You were sent. Look at the power that was manifested when I was there. It was God's. It wasn't yours. It was God's. You're not more right with God because you obeyed God. God in his goodness is using us for his glory, for his pleasure. To bring forth to him what he saved us for. Not to take his glory. He said in Isaiah he would not share his glory with another. And yet man down here likes to get all the attention he can. Likes to be praised and all of that. But Jesus, back to our story, said, except your righteousness, your rightness before God, except it's more than what these Pharisees are that like to boast and praise and so much of Christendom today, I'm afraid. You won't make it. You shall not enter the kingdom. Proud, haughty, cocky people don't make it to heaven. God's program for man on this earth is to humble him. Because Jesus referred to the little child. He said, whosoever shall humble himself as this little child who in the midst of all these people watching him walked out there in obedience to what the Lord said and did only what God said, and that was to stand there. He didn't offer any excuses. He didn't say why he didn't. His clothes weren't the best he could have had on today. He didn't say that he just stood there. And Jesus said, this is what I want in my kingdom. This is who the kingdom of God is for. And if you have children and you cause them to stumble, to where they turn away from me, it'd be better for you if a millstone was tied about your neck and you were thrown into the sea because God counts them to be precious. The kingdom of God is the like kingdom of children, obedient souls, humbled before God, recognizing who he is and recognizing who they are and just simply letting him be God, letting him increase while they decrease. So he said, except you be born again in John 3, except in Matthew 5, your righteousness exceed this. He says, you won't make it. Go back to Matthew 18. And again, he said in verse 3, except you be converted and become as little children, you won't make it. Converted is a turning around. It simply means that. It's a turning around. Remember one time Peter said to Jesus, oh no, that's not going, no, no, you're not going to do that. The Bible said Jesus turned and said to him, well, the word turned is our word converted. Same word, Matthew 16, I think the other one is. He turned to Peter, he turned around and he addressed him. 
Now, in a spiritual sense, Jesus said, except you be converted. In this life, with all your philosophies, all your opinions, and all your figured out way through this life, you're going to have to come to a day in which when Jesus speaks to you and confronts you, you're going to turn around and see what he has to say because that's not him talking out here in the world. You won't find him in the theaters and on the stages and in the lofty books about philosophers. You'll find him in that still small voice and when he calls your name. For me, it was June 30th, 1968. Didn't hear a name, didn't hear a voice, but there was this tremendous urging, inclination to turn my life over to Jesus and surrender my rights to me and give them to him. I didn't know that at the time because I think I kept a lot of control of my life. But I stand here today 44 years later and I can tell you that that's exactly what he wants. Turn around and face him. It's your only hope. There's no other way through life. He said, I am the way, the truth, the life. There is no other way. You don't have to believe that if you don't want to. Live your life. But if you want to live in eternity, you've got to deal with it. And when they turned to him and he said, I'm the way, the truth, and the life, you've got to surrender yourself. You say, Lord, I surrender all. Don't we sing that sometimes? I surrender all, all to Jesus. I surrender. I do it in my car. But that's what it's supposed to be. That day of our new birth was a day of surrender. It was a day in which you turned over your rights that you've controlled. You give them to Jesus and you humble yourself before him with the attitude that you are from now on, my guide and my savior. You are altogether right and I'm altogether wrong. And when we don't agree, you give me a cross and I die to myself. And this is the only way I can walk with you. I can't see you. I can't hear you. I can't touch you. I've got a book about you and you leave me with only this book. And if I want to have a right relationship to you, then I got to live like the content of this book is divine and eternal and I must live this way. So I'm given to a book, a book that you gave. And I am measured in my loyalty to you as to how I respond to this book. But that's what I do when I give my life to Jesus. He becomes my Lord, controller. He becomes my Savior. And the rest of my life is a process of giving up more of my rights. Because how many of you know that when you came to Christ, you didn't know much? Well, I'll tell you in case you don't know how to answer that, you didn't. And you were hard-headed and difficult. And just because you got saved, you weren't a sweeter wife right away, and you weren't a sweeter husband. You weren't a better parent. You didn't know how to be. But God gave you the privilege of coming to hear his word. Then you've got now the option. You can either go hear it or you can go do something else. And if that still small voice says, you can't live this life unless you know how to live it, you've got to find out what's in the book. Then he draws you to a place where they teach the word. And that's the place of conviction. And that conviction is what brings 
well, husband-wife parenting, church membership, an honest soul in the workforce and diligent. That's where all of this comes to light. And then we realize the more light we get, the more hard-headed we are and how much we resist God all the time. But God is teaching us for those who want to be taught because one of the greatest traits of children is they want to be taught. Little children love to be taught. They may grow out of it. I have enough children. I've had seven, and I've got so many grandchildren. We got a whole bunch of them. Now we got some great grands. I know enough about children in the last 50 plus years of my life. I've known enough about children. I can speak about them. And one of the outstanding traits of a child, they want to be taught. They love to learn. One of the first things you buy your child after you get past the bouncy ball and the things that make noise, you buy them a book. Now, they can't read, but they look at pictures. And then they hear you identify pictures and their little mind is just beginning to grow and the wrinkles are coming in their brain. They begin to put things together and then... You begin to tell a story about it. Sometimes a big print at the bottom, so easy to read, and you read the stories to the children. They'll sit in your lap for a long time if you'll keep talking. I know that uh, when my children were growing up, they had their new books. We still have some of them now. They're not very new. But they would get one when you come home. They would get a book and want you to sit down on the couch and bring a book and read it to me. They couldn't read yet. And sometimes you think, oh, I want to go outside and do something. And yet here's this big-eyed child you're so glad you have. Read it to me. Now, I was always a little more dramatic. I wasn't much for just reading and reading and droning on. I had to put a little drama in it. And maybe that's why they liked it. But I would read it with a lot of storytelling. And one day, and oh, they just. <laughs> Children love to learn. I found that a certain age group of my children, well, grandchildren now, as a certain age group, they can be playing in my house and I can stop all of them by doing this. Once upon a time, a long time ago, and here they come. (laughs) Because they want to hear the story. They want to hear their grandpa talk about a barn out in the country with Hayloff and, and a little family of mice, and there was a little mouse called Bunky. All the adventures of, I should write a book on this, but... And all the scenarios, little Bunky got himself. And you know, their imagination is very much growing. But they love it. There are Christians who likewise love to hear the Bible taught. You can't keep them away from church. I know of people who hear what's said here. They take notes, go home, listen to the, we can't say tape anymore. Listen to the disc and then read about it again, listen to it, and read again because of this quest. 
to master the understanding of this book. This is our life. It's only a book until there's a hunger and a thirst for it. The hunger and the thirst can only come from God. For a natural man, the Bible says, cannot comprehend it. But when we begin to seek after the things of God and desire the things of God, and the word of God becomes so enjoyable, we like these little children. We want to run and learn and hear all about that and pick up all of this and and think about that. We get in the car sometimes after church on Wednesday night to drive to the Cracker Barrel. Sometimes two or three of them want to ride with grandmother and grandfather or granny and papa. They no longer get in the car and get buckled in until one of them in particular says, Papa, tell me a story. They want to hear stories. Preacher, preach to us. Never heard that one yet. Never heard that one yet. Preacher, preach to us. Little children. What if we, in that regard, were like little children and the wonder of it all? The absolute sheer enjoyment of having a fixation in my mind, getting an image in my mind of the stories about Jesus. Somehow seeing myself there. When he says, this can all men do, to see myself there receiving that, to fix myself in, in his presence. What if we were so hungry that we spent at least 10 minutes every day reading and praying, just reading something in the Bible and praying about it? Because I'll tell you what, I have not yet told a story to any of my children or grandchildren in which they got up and left the couch. I've already heard that. That same old story. That same old, same old. Because sometimes they listen to the same story twice. And when they hear you say something different than you did before, ah! Uh-uh, Papa, that's not what they did. You see, they've already heard it. They like to hear it again. And you tell it another time, you better get it right as you did the first time because they'll correct you. You know why? Because they remember it. Little children love to learn because they're children. They just want it like that. And we're told as Christians to study to show yourself, uh uh-oh, study to show yourself approved unto God as a workman. You mean that's part of being a doer of the word is to be approved of God? Like that? Apparently so. Study to show thyself or endeavor to show yourself approved unto God a workman. Paul wrote that, that from a child thou hast known the holy scriptures which are able to make thee wise unto salvation. That's where it starts, from a child. You were easy to teach when you were small. I doubt that a lot of Christian parents today have taken much of an advantage of all of the opportunities they've had as Christian parents to teach their children. I doubt it. I doubt if they do tell stories to their children or they read books, hopefully they're Christian books, they can put Jesus in the whole scenario. Because the little mouse I was telling you about, Bunky, 
He knows all about the Lord. His mother taught him all the time. And he was a little Christian mouse. Well, the children try to identify the story, but you know what I mean. Talk about God. You can always introduce this to your children. It means so much more when it comes to mom and dad. It does. But I don't know that we Christian parents who say we've gained so much from God have transferred that same gain to our children at that time when they're most receptive to it. Let me tell you something, all of us are parents. There's a time when your child really wants to know. And there's a time they'll get over it if they see there's nothing to it. If they look at your life, we're not going to church this Sunday, why? Well, we're going to the flea market. They'll figure out right away that your involvement with God isn't nearly as important as that flea market. Or that other thing you left off to go do. You know, we know where your priorities are, Daddy. I don't want to get to the end of my sermon yet, but down there in that sixth verse, he talks about if we offend our children, you're in bad shape. Now, offend means scandalazo. It's a word which essentially means a stumbling block. You cast stumbling blocks before your children. Remember, remember this, all of you. Our children are thinkers. There's not a time of the day they're not thinking. They think all the time. They try to figure out things all the time. When they can't figure it out, they usually come and ask. And when they're learning how to ask, they wear you out. Because every other word is why. Well, why? Well, why? Well, why? That's when a dad says, go ask your mother. <laughs> and she says, I am busy. That's daddy's department. <laughs> Wait a minute. They figure out while we're laughing, they figure out that it must not be a big deal because nobody wants to talk about it. Well, anyway, I'm just saying that, that our children not only listen, they watch. And sometimes that eagerness is snatched right out of their minds and hearts and our ways become stumbling blocks. But first of all, children like to learn, gather information. The second thing about children is that they're trusting. They trust you. That little child that came in the presence of Jesus, he wasn't afraid that Jesus would abuse him. The child obviously wasn't afraid that he's going to be worse off for coming out there than he was for coming out there child just simply stepped forward, just stood there and probably bowed his head. Very humble. But you know what? They trust. If any of you have had children or raised children, or you know of others that do, then you know that they never get up in the morning and fret over having something to wear or something to eat. Now, they fret over what to wear when they get older. But when they're little, all they want to do is have a good time. They don't care if they're not the latest fashions or they got their labels right. They don't care about that. They don't care if the goodwill clothes them front and back. They don't care. Some of them don't even care if they're clothed. <laughs> they don't have a problem yet. They just know that childhood is for fun. 
And they don't worry about what they're going to eat. They don't even worry if their eggs are fixed right. They eat them the way they're fixed. They eat what's set before them. Except for Brussels sprouts, and I don't blame them for that. But <laughs> they just eat what's in front of them. They enjoy life. They don't worry about money. They don't worry about the cost of gasoline. They're like birds, Jesus said. Look at the birds of the air. They take no thought for anything, just like little children. They don't either. They don't have a problem with what time they get up, what they're going to eat, or what they're going to wear. They don't even care if they're clean. I've had some that, you know, you thought when they went to bed at night, they, you thought they at least splashed water on their face. And get them up in the morning, and they got mud all over, and it's dirty looking. They don't care. They don't care if they got clean or not. If they're going to church, they wipe the front of their face off. If they can, get by with it, and that's it. Old school. My mother, old school. I haven't seen this happen in the last 50 years, 40 years. 30 anyway. Old school. My mother and women of that era always had a hanky. And one of the things I still despise to this day in my memory is when we were going to go somewhere, go in somebody's house, and my mother would take that hanky out and lick it and then start rubbing my face with that thing. I used to hate that. I thought, go get that off my... I can't say that to my mother. All I can do is stand there and let her rub on my little head and get that dirt off my face. But there's something about just trusting that your needs are going to be met. Little kids don't sit around and talk about what we're going to do tomorrow. The price of milk has gone up so much, we may not get drink milk anymore. They might say we can always buy a cow. That's the way kids would think. They don't worry. But that's one of the things that we should be like. And yet the older it seems that we get, we worry about so much. We're so concerned about so many things. We just have so many problems. What are we going to do if? What are we going to do about this health care thing? We can't afford to pay that kind of money. Well, what are we going to do about this or that, they're about taxes and this and what. What are we going to do? What are we going to do? You know what Jesus teaches? He said, take no thought. When you say it to other people, I'm going to take no thought, one of the first questions they ask is, what church you go to? Because that's a weird one. Anybody that would believe today that God will take care of you in this age thinks that you've been warped or mentally twisted in some way and you're getting it all wrong. If you don't worry and fret and rub your hands and argue and fuss about things, there's something wrong with you. But then on the other hand, there's something that God does to people that takes the pride right out of us. Scripture tells us that arguing in the church, strife in the church, is because of contention, scoffing, fussing at each other. And it's all attributed 
to pride. I see you as less than me. I want somebody to know you're less than me. I don't like the way you wear this. I don't like this or that. So I'm going to tell somebody what you do because I'm looking down my nose at you. You're not my equal. We saw that in the church in 1 Corinthians. The whole church came together. They didn't mix. You had a group here, group here, group here, and a group here. This group had a lot. This group had little. They didn't care. They separated themselves from each other. They would tell you why we don't hang with you. They'd tell you what's wrong with you or wrong with your children. We're not going to hang around people like that. Get away from me. And yet, children, they don't have that problem, do they? They don't care what color you are. If you don't smell good, they'll just say you stink because that's the way children are. Like a third thing about children is that very thing. They love. They simply love. They cooperate. You don't have a problem with people that are childlike. You don't have all this opposition from people that are childlike. They just have a loving way about them. I'll tell you something, you take children, get your room full of toys, put something in there besides little Hot Wheels, put some Tonka toys and some other stuff, some crawling stuff, loud stuff and bouncy stuff and throw stuff in there. Put all that in there, a room. And you can turn little black kids in there, you can turn little white kids in there, you can turn little whatever color there is in the world in there, yellow, or what other ethnic group anywhere in the world, just leave the parents out, let the kids in there, they'll have a big time. They can't speak the same language, but the smile's the same on all of them. All they want to do is get along. All they want to do is have fun and cooperate. And if one hurts one, they'll say, I'm sorry. Until they get older, of course, until their parents have indoctrinated them against that. Sometimes just hearing parents talk about it at the table. And they begin to figure it out that, well, this is the way we're supposed to be. But they love each other. If one gets hurt, they'll go find somebody to come and help them. They laugh and cut up. They don't care what color you are. You tell a little American kid, that kid over there is a Muslim. He don't care. I like mud myself. That's all he knows or she knows. We develop this resistance to others as we grow older and as we get more inclined to see what the world is trying to show us. Not what God's showing us, but what the world shows us. And then we start hanging around, if I may say that, we start hanging around political groups. And boy, when you start hanging around political groups, you can throw all this love for others out the door because so much of it is hate. It is rejection. I don't agree with it. I mean, I don't agree with what they're rejecting. I just don't think it's necessary for me as a Christian to get involved in all that. Somebody was explaining to me the other day about the latest whatever in the world, the political world that's not fair, and they're trying to do this, they're trying to do that. Senator from Connecticut wanted Fox News to not air the car race last night because the NRA sponsored it. 
And you know, the NRA is a problem in America. They said it isn't, but they said that. Well, I can't believe I tell you one. And I'm thinking, who could care less? I'm not going to do anything about it. I'm not going to get in my car and drive to Washington protesting and say, hey, me, in your face, I want you to stop it because I don't like it. You hear me? We'll say, if we don't stand up for our rights, who will? Actually, we don't have any anymore. I remember a wife telling her husband one time, said, you hurt my feelings. He said to her, you're not supposed to have any. (laughs) Yourself. (laughs) I'm just saying that we're looking at children, the way of children. And we see things about children we don't see in ourselves. We don't. There may be exceptions, but not many. We see the way of children, and we don't see ourselves as Christians like that in the Christian world. We still get in people's faces. I've told myself to shut up the last three weeks more than any time in my life, more than my mother did in my whole life. Because of my mouth at a traffic light. I'm amazed at how many people just can't drive. You know what I mean? It'd drive my way. Hey, come on, go! I actually talked about it like that in my car. Go! Come on! Then I'd hear it. And I'd say, shut up, Tom. Shut your mouth. This is part of your training, so just shut up. When my children were growing up, we pulled to a traffic light. To this day, or a grandchild, when I've had them in the car, I've never seen them yet stand up in their seat and say, come on up there. <laughs> but if they see me do it, guess what they will do one day? That's what Peppa does. That's who I learned it from. But children are loving kids. I mean, they just like to love. Turn to John 13. Jesus said, by this shall all men know that you are my disciples. By this shall all men know that you are my disciples. If you have what? Love amongst yourselves. Love includes my next point, forgiveness. We'll get to that in a minute. Love. We quit holding grudges against each other. Doesn't the Bible say love covers a multitude of sins? See, when I'm offended by somebody, and I am on occasion, I find myself being offended. It's part of the plan, like hollering at people in the car. I find myself being offended. Sometimes you have to stop and you have to think. You have to put God before your feelings. I'm sorry, Lord. I shouldn't have this attitude about people because that's not a heavenly attitude. You're not training me to be like this. If I keep doing it, I'm not responding to you anymore. I'm doing things my way. Lord, help me to to love my brothers and my sisters. Can you make them a little more perfect than they are so I can love them? Can you make them just a little more the way I'd like for them to be? Well, maybe he said, I'll make you a little more the way they want you to be. Love covers a multitude of sins. It keeps us from fighting. It keeps us from arguing. 
It keeps us from throwing a fit and getting in somebody's face. You just simply say, Lord, I'm going to give that back to the devil. I'm not going to say it. I'm not going to do it. If they smite you on one cheek, what do you do? You turn the other one? What if they take you to court to sue you? I'll tell you what, I'll get the best lawyer I know. And what he said to do. We're Christians. Well, this is what we had in our Bible for years. This is how we're supposed to be, like little children. I mean, it's just the way we're supposed to be. First Peter chapter 4 and verse 8, he says, and above all things, he said, have fervent love or charity amongst yourselves. Fervent. That's white hot. Love amongst yourselves in this room. You know why we stand apart from each other? You know why we have attitudes? Because somebody displeases me and I don't like that, so I'm not going to deal with it. I'm not going to go talk to anybody. I'm just going to withdraw and say to heck with it. I'm away from that. I ain't going to do it. So we just kind of become standoffish. It's not my fault. Hey, it's not my fault. That was the other sermon we were about to have this week. Not my fault. We don't really care if we're not getting along. We just don't want to get along. We don't want to fix it. Don't want to talk about it. Don't want to solve it. Don't want to reach a solution. Let's just leave me with my feelings. I'll leave you with your... And that is not heavenly. Are y'all here? That is not the heavenly way. That is not the way God wants us to do it. That's not how we deal with it. Proverbs 10, 12 says, Hatred stirreth up strife, but love covers all sins. Hatred. But love covers it. You tell me a story about somebody, probably true. You know what I do with it? I bury it. Or I tell the person telling it. You know, i really rather not hear that. I don't doubt what you're saying is true. It's just not something I need in my mind. I'm not going to do anything about it because I can't. But I don't want to know about it. I just don't want to hear about it. I don't, I don't even know if it's true. I'm going to believe it because you're my friend and you're telling me, but I, that doesn't make it true. You may have an ax to grind. Now, God forbid that we be people in the church who are willing to take sides against each other. God saved from us on both sides, and we won't even talk to each other on both sides. What are we going to do in heaven? What's somebody going to do in heaven with that? That's not the way we're told to live down here. That's not what he wants us to do. That's not the way he told us to live. Would you turn to 1 Corinthians 13 just for a moment? I'm sure you're familiar with this one. 1 Corinthians chapter 13. This gives us a little idea what love is, or a whole lot of an idea. Verse 4. He says, love suffereth long, doesn't he? That is, it puts up with a lot without firing back. Long-suffering. And is kind. Kind. Love envieth not. Love vaunteth not itself. That's pride. You're not loving when you're puffed up. 
You're not loving when you behave yourself unseemly or rudely. You're not walking in love. You're not walking in love when you're seeking your own way, my way. Maybe you got a little money and you think everybody ought to do it your way because you got money. That's not love. That's not heavenly either. You might have it on the earth, but you won't do that in heaven because you won't be there. Seeketh not her own is not easily provoked. Thinketh no evil. Rejoices not in iniquity. Maybe even self-righteousness. Doesn't rejoice in that, but rejoices in the truth. Notice verse 7. Love bears all things. Love believes all things. Love hopes all things and endures all things. Love never fails. It never fails. But where there are prophecies, they shall fail and so on and so forth. Love is a mighty mountain that we need to climb and reign at the peak of it. It's what makes us the way God describes us in the Bible. If you measure yourself by this word and you realize I'm not like that, it's because there's a love problem in your life, trust me. Well, I thought it was a faith problem. Faith works by love if it's proper. Faith is the effort of loving God by doing what he wants on his terms. That's why you trust him, because you love him. Another thing about children is that they're forgiving. Little children just naturally forgive. They don't hold grudges. Those of you that are parents, have you ever spanked your child? Now, if you're with social services here this morning, you're free to leave. <laughs> if you're here to take notes about that, I spanked mine. Not anymore. They're all grown. But have you ever spanked a child? We have spanked our children. Two of us. I know you did because I was there. All right. <laughs> we spanked them. Use a little paddle, uh, a belt, a little piece of the belt, a switch. Boy, they got fire in them. They got fire in the end of a switch. They'll mine right away with a switch. Or you can just say that Yes, I have. I have spanked mine with whatever means was available. One of my children used a coat hanger once, I remember. I said, it ain't going to work. I don't know. Get something else. And no matter how aggravated you were at your child when you spanked it, you know what the child did afterwards? Because we used to have this program. We'd, after we spanked our children, we'd set them on our knee or set them down. The reason you got to spank it is because of what you did. Now, the Bible teaches us as parents now, I wasn't consistent in doing this, so it was only every now and then, depending on how mad I was, I guess. But then you explain to them, this is why I'm spanking you, or this is why you got a spanking. It's because of what you did was not what you were allowed to do, and you did it anyway. Therefore, the punishment for that, because you see, God does that to us. And you begin to explain why you spank a child, because God chastens us. Make the connection. And then you do that, you dry the tears, and you say, now, put a smile on your face. Well, they don't like that. 
one of my children one time told one of his sons, and everyone has a son, told one of his sons after he had just scolded them. They were mad. He said, put a smile on that face. He said, put a smile on that face. You ought to see a child that is really angry try to smile. You know why they did? Because of their respect or fear of authority. That's right. I remember one of my children one time told one of my grandchildren who was pouting, had a lip that was hanging down, said, you pick that lip up. Get that lip up. And they didn't, and I thought, uh-oh, uh-oh, uh-oh. I see Bonnie and this daughter. Get that lip up right now. I remember this child looked at this mom and said, it won't come up. <laughs> I walked out of the room. I thought, oh. that's children. That's an honest statement. Another time, one of my grandsons was in trouble about his mouth, about talking. And she said, the same mother said, you better watch your mouth. And I'll never forget this. He crossed his eyes and put him right down his nose. He said, I can't see it. <laughs> I went outside again. I thought, that's children. My little grandson, Gus, when we were over there last time, they put on a little show for us about the shepherd and, and all of that stuff. And Gus was a shepherd. You know, all your grandkids are cute. Well, this one really is. And so, and he put this little garb on and he was standing like a little shepherd and nobody knew their lie. They were just having fun. And all of a sudden, little Gus got down on his knees, started barking. I'm thinking, what in the world? So one of them said, why are you doing that? He said, I'm a German shepherd. <laughs> now, that's children. That's children. Children do that. All he knew was at his young age was that a shepherd is somebody that looks like this, but the one I like is the one that barks. He wanted to be a German shepherd. Now, that has nothing to do with forgiveness. I'm just saying that children are so honest. They really are bothered when somebody is hurt and they're playing with. Until they get older. But when they're little like that, they just want to play and have fun. And then whenever one of them gets hurt, they say, I'm sorry. And they want to fix it and get things right so they can go back to playing again. But, you know, when a child gets a spanking, right away they're back to normal. They love you, kiss you goodnight, tell you how much they love you before they go to bed. And yet when somebody in the church offends us, we may not speak to them for a year. And a child won't even go to bed without saying, I'm sorry and I love you. What happened to us along the way? Or what happens to adults along the way? What happens that we go from that to something that God can't even use? I don't care what church you go to or how many victories you've had. There's a plumb line here that God puts before us. If we don't measure up to that, we don't have much. We're not much. Turn to Colossians 
chapter 3 and verse 12. Let's check ourselves out with this. Put on, therefore, as the elect of God, are you? Now, that's your question to answer. Put on, therefore, as the elect of God, holy and beloved, bowels of mercy, kindness, humbleness of mind, meekness, long-suffering, forbearing one another and forgiving one another. If any man have a quarrel against any, even as Christ forgave you, so also do ye. And above all these things put on love, which is the bond of perfectness. How about that? Is that us? All right, go back two books. Go back to Ephesians. Let's try another one. Ephesians 4 and verse 31. This one is a little easier. <laughs> Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and evil speaking be put away from you with all malice and be you kind one to another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another, even as God for Christ's sake hath forgiven you. Now, before we leave this room this morning, let me just remind you of how many times you've been ticked off by somebody else. You've been bothered, troubled by, and you told as many people who would listen to you about it. So you begin to spread how you feel about it because of the problem you have inside. You're not very loving. You're certainly not very forgiving. You hold things in and you don't wish well on other people. There's not a tenderness in your life. How did we get this way? Or were we like this when we came to the Lord and we have not responded to the word he said to respond to? I don't know. I know people have. You know what I'm saying. I'm just saying, folks, that the seriousness of what I'm talking about today, while we can humor ourselves with little children and all of those things, the seriousness of it comes back to that word, accept. You've got to become like little children. You've got to lay down your anger and your tantrums and your pride and who you think you are and how important you think you are. You can't allow yourself to say, well, I want to preach too. You let that guy preach. I know I can preach better than him. I don't even want you to preach because that's just something I don't need to hear. I remember a young man traveled with me years ago down to Bowling Green, Kentucky. We had a meeting in the Martin's house, and he wanted to go with me. I said, um, okay. But this guy liked to talk, and I don't like to yap that much when I'm traveling. So uh, he got in the car, and we were driving along. He said, he said brother, you think there'll be a chance of me preaching someday? Well, I said, well, you know, the Lord does whatever he wants to. He said, you ever think about when maybe you'll let me preach? And I thought, oh, two or three years. He said, you know, we got to know who you are. We got to know how you conduct yourself. We got to see you in a few situations to see what kind of a constitution you have. Or maybe you're overly ambitious and you want to get in a pulpit and do your thing, which is not God's thing. Maybe you want to make yourself of some repute so you can go out and say, oh, I preach, buddy, I'm one of the... 
Maybe that's what your whole goal in life. You're still full of pride. I don't need that. Well, they voted for a door watcher. Not they didn't. None of them voted for me. You can still come to church. You can still hear the gospel. You can still grow, and you don't have to watch the door. There's so much pride. I want to be. I want people to know. Oh, the Christian church. Can I tell them another story? We had the new preacher in the church, John Bartlett. Didn't know him. I just moved in town from Ohio, and I came in the church because I went back to the church I was grew up in. And one morning he was sitting in front of me, and I knew that he also directed the choir. And I made sure the volume of my singing was a little louder. I wanted him to know that I knew not only I could carry notes and read music and could harmonize and blend in, I wanted him to see how good I was. Let me ask you all a question. Is that pride? Of course it is. Notice me. Well, he did. And this is how you play the game. Brother, you have such a good voice. We need you in the choir. Ah! I don't know. You know. Now, keep begging me because I like your attention now. Don't tell me people don't do it. They do it. I'm, I know how this game is played. But this, there comes a time when the gentleness of Jesus comes into your life. And in a way which only he can do, he lets you know that he can't use you. When you think more highly of yourself than you ought to, because when you do, you're seeking your way and not his. And you'll change what he says in his word and say it your way, because people would probably rather hear your version than his version. And then you'll go into error and you'll mislead people and I'll have to judge you. Now I look back now in my life for the last 50 years. I'm not proud that I'm humble. I'm not saying, <laughs> I guess you'd be proud that you're humble. But I can look back and I can guarantee you honestly that like Paul said, I am the chief of sinners. I can say that too. I am less than the least of all saints. He said that. Well, I can understand that now because when you see yourself like God sees you, there's nothing there to boast of. There's only a place where I can bend my knees and shut my eyes and give thanks to God for saving a wretch like me. Because apart from what he can do and what only he can do in a man's life, I can do nothing. And neither can you. I am not perfect. I do not always make the right decisions. Have not always said the right things or done the right things. I've allowed myself the luxury on occasion of being lazy. But everything is fixable. Everything is changeable. Because if my heart can be like the heart of a child, I just need to know where he is and I'll come right there and let him do whatever he wants to do. If he tells me to go sit down, I'll be more than happy to sit down. And if he wants me to hold up somebody else's hand so we can win the battle, nobody will ever know who I was, but I played a role in that. But I don't want any rewards here. We get them on the other side. We are still unprofitable servants. But that's the way of a child. You've never heard little children boast. I've read more books than you've read. 
They don't do that. They just drive cars over dogs and cats in the back of the couch and over you while you're trying to take a nap. They run it across your face. and They just play. They just have a real good time. Now, go back to Matthew 18 and look with me at verse 6. But whoso shall offend one of these little ones which believe in me, it would be better for him, for that person, that a millstone were hanged about his neck and he were drowned in the depth of the sea. There's no hope there, is there? That's rejection. That's divine, heavenly rejection. All because of what? Offending one of these little ones. Now, you can offend them directly and indirectly. Directly, you can ridicule them. You can mock what they believe or what they want to believe or the Sunday school stories. And unsaved father may laugh at all the little stories his child tells him from Sunday school class, the miracles and the Red Sea and raising the dead and Lazarus. Oh, and the father doesn't realize that what he is saying is directly influencing this child's attitude towards God. Now that father, one day, as that child loses sight of heaven and begins to walk into the misery of this world, ask anybody that's caught up in how miserable it is and how wretched it is, when 20, 30 years later you look at yourself and you're not much. You got nothing to look forward to in eternity. All your marbles were played in this world, in this life right now, and you don't have anything. One of the reasons that child took that step was because a long time ago, daddy made fun of him. See, I don't believe it. Well, you have to. They began to associate with other children that heard the same thing. Wasn't much to it. They gave up their desire for it or they wanted to be a Christian and they were opposed by their parents and they were dissuaded some way or persecuted by their family or their friends, especially their parents. The Bible says the word offend is stumbling block. You put something in the path of your child as God was getting his tender heart informed about heaven and he comes along and hears you 30 years older than this child you have no regard for God or anything sacred. Your life is all about you and your body and your future. And you don't want this child to have a pure life, so you talk them out of it. And they grow up and they get hooked and high and all the stuff that goes with that. I wonder how many children will cross over into the eternal life in darkness and look at their father and say, why didn't you warn me about this place? And he'll probably look for his father and say, he didn't warn me either. And the devil robbed the whole bunch of them. Because indirectly, you can put a stumbling block in the way of your child simply by living an inconsistent life. Take your kids to church. Take them to church. Take them to the, all the services. Say prayers at the table. I mean, say a made-up prayer. Don't just give me a thank you for the world so sweet, thank you for the food we thank you for the birds saying thank God for everything. Amen. And we thank you for this. Just make up one. Let your kids know you're making up a prayer. 
do all of that. Get everybody together before church. Okay, we're going to church. We're going to have a good time today. And then cuss. Watch trash on TV while your children are there. And then feel guilty that you're not letting them watch it because you are, so you let them watch it. Oh, they'll be all right. They're going to run into it anyway in life. I mean, they're going to see it when they get to school. I mean, they're going to see scenes worse than that. Women disrobing and men, they might as well see it now in a Christian home. So the child begins to equate, if my daddy is watching that, it must not be so bad. I want to watch it too. They're not ready for it. Whatever happened to children playing with toys? How is it today, as I said last week, that six-tenths of one percent of 10-year-olds in America have had a sexual experience? Ten years old. Ten. They're teaching sex education younger than that. Our kids are being bombarded with filth. Filth. The people that are teaching filth are the people that in the 60s burned our campuses down. Now they're grandparents and they're leaders and congressmen and teachers and philosophers. And they're teaching our kids what they did. The only hope your children have is you. And it's you to set them down and explain to them why all the systems of this world are wrong when they do not speak according to God's word and then live it. Because if you don't live the life, you put a stumbling block of your testimony in your child's way. When you don't want to do it and submit yourself to it, why should they? When you lie and cheat and steal or you sit around the table and talk about how bad some people are in the church or you talk about how bad some religions are in the world, not in a contrasting way, you know, the Christianity says this, well, this is what they believe. But just as a yaya, our kids begin to lose sight of what kindness and mercy is all about. They just realize there's something wrong with what I'm hearing in the church, what my mother or daddy tells us we ought to do and what they do. You see, we are indirectly responsible. I don't know how serious some of you are as parents with your children. I've had my chance. I didn't do very well. I can't go back and do it again. They have their chance now. And if they don't set their children down and begin as you walk along the way, as you sit by the road and as you whatever, when they don't start talking about Jesus and contrast why we believe the way we do and why we don't do what other kids do, and why we don't go there and buy into that or why we're not like that because of what we believe in the Bible and then be willing to live that in front of the child. If we don't do that, then we're almost giving them up to the world. Our little children are precious. They weren't made by God to be a problem in your life, never. They weren't made to grow up and be misfits in society. Our daughters weren't made to grow up and be sleeping around trying to experience some sexual happiness. We failed. But we have a chance. We have a chance. 
You can now. You say, well, I'm not much into the Bible stuff. Well, that's your problem. You need to get saved in. Well, I can't sit my kids down and talk to them about the Lord. I'd well, see, if you don't, who will? The school teacher? I'm not going to fight that. I'm not going to email those people. I'm just going to sit mine down and say, did you hear what she said? Let me tell you why that's wrong. Let me tell you why that's wrong. And then you tell them. And you trust that God as you pray for them, you pray for their pillow. They lay their heads on. You pray for their little bodies when they're little. That God would take this child and enable you to, in your part of their life, trusting in him to make this child a citizen of God's kingdom. I would to God that all of this would come to pass like that. Who is the greatest in the kingdom? Who's the greatest? Little children. Are you one? Amen. Amen. Father, in the name of Jesus, we pray this morning for the light of your word to shine into our hearts, that our eyes would continue to be opened, that we would be able to see clearly what you're saying. I pray for conviction. I pray for conviction this morning. Every father here that has children, if there's any daddies watching this morning, I pray that them too, that the heart of father will be restored to the children in these last days. And the children will begin to find the source of their strength in the God of their fathers. Lord, let us lose no more. I pray for a spirit of forgiveness repentance, and whatever is necessary, Lord, this morning to bring us where we ought to be. These are your people, Lord. They're the sheep of your pasture. Richly bless them, I ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.